Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Nicola Banks, is a lecturer in global urbanism and urban development at the University of Manchester. She has conducted some pioneering research on the role of the NGO sector in global development, and some of her findings, including that development NGOs be more politically engaged, are being adopted and tested by some major aid agencies. Dr. Banks is also undertaking an ambitious project, along with Professor Dan Brockington of the University of Sheffield, of mapping the UK's NGO sector, and we discuss some of her findings from that study. Needless to say, NGOs play a big role in global development, and UK-based NGOs in particular do as well. These include some of the big ones like Oxfam and Save the Children, as well as a scattering of smaller NGOs and mid-sized NGOs. Together, the UK NGO sector is a powerful force in global development, so understanding exactly how they work is key to understanding global development challenges more broadly. This episode is part of a new content partnership between the podcast and the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. For the next several months, we'll be featuring from time to time experts from the Global Development Institute who will discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk or click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Now, here is my conversation with Dr. Nicola Banks. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So we argue in our 2015 paper that NGOs find themselves um, facing quite tricky demands in ways that question their comparative advantages and what they offer as, as development actors separate from those that we envision are normally the role of, of the state. Um, key there is kind of assessing what NGOs can and do do against what has been flagposted as their true comparative advantages. So what makes them a, an actor that's worth investing in, in terms of development, as opposed to other actors um, most commonly seen as, as um, responsible for development. Uh, so key there are, in particular, the, the strength of the grassroots connections they have. So NGOs are much more locally rooted in the communities that they're trying to support and help development. And that means they're better able to reflect their needs and their priorities and their demands. And that's really 
in the first kind of academic literature that looked at NGOs, that was really promoted as what made NGOs really worthwhile and so, unique actors. Because they, they're very responsive to the needs of the people on the ground. They have those kind of like deep connections to the individual people whose lives they're seeking to change and, and uplift. That, that's the idea? A- absolutely. First and foremostly, they're, they're close to the grassroots. They, they know what individual communities are, are trying to do or requiring, um, and they're able to uh, respond to those um, in ways that other actors that are trying to generalize across much larger populations um, are unable to do. And, and those other actors, for example, could be like governments and, and like the World Bank and, and big institutions? Yes. Yeah. So, so more from your top-down perspective of development, where the, the experts are designing programs based on what they think might um, might be applicable to different communities, uh, and they want to operate those at scale on a much larger basis. So they tend to kind of, there's a danger that they overlook the kind of real community needs and the the complex cultural and social differences that make communities unique and um, mean that they can't all be treated the same. And so what other sort of comparative advantages did you find with NGOs? Um, so also their potential to be innovative. And again, that goes to the fact that they're working more locally and tend to be working on a on a smaller scale. And again, because they have that grassroots connection, they can adapt what they have tried elsewhere to be more um, more aligned with community needs. They can try out new things on a small scale adapt small and incrementally until they find out what works. So the innovative capacity is another one. And and you argue, correct me if I'm wrong, that this um, in general, and, and we're sort of generalizing across NGOs, that has made NGOs like very effective technical implementers of anti-poverty programs. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's both a technical thing and it's also a philosophical thing, really. The the, the strength on which NGOs have been kind of promoted is is based on these, um, as well as kind of the technical side of things. Uh, and so what um, are some of the comparative disadvantages then of, of NGOs? And I think this is where some of your uh, work has sparked some controversy. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much a, a disadvantage of NGOs, but it's it's where NGOs are situated within a broader aid chain. So where they face competing demands. And while we say that what's really strong about an NGO is its link with the grassroots, you can't take that out of the bigger aid chain in which they're situated. So when NGOs are not um, self-financed, that's they generally generally reply, rely on funds from um, supporters or from governments. They also have to be responsible to to those further up the aid chain. Um, so they face competing accountabilities to donors vis-a-vis the communities that they're um, trying to represent. Um, and that diminishes that um, connection with the grassroots, whether or not that's because they have to put so much time and resources into reporting to donors or whether or not that's because they have to start um they have to start adapting what they're doing due to donor priorities rather than reflecting upwards from what their communities are needing and demanding. Could you maybe walk me through like a specific example or at least at least like a generalized example of, of how of, of, of these kind of competing pressures on, on an NGO? I think some of the, the strong examples that you see reflected in the literature is um, if you look at kind of donor fads and priorities and how that influences what NGOs are doing in different countries and continents, 
Uh, one that jumps out quite strongly is um, donor priorities for HIV AIDS prevention in uh, across the African continent. And there is quite a lot of literature there that says communities and, and um, community-based organizations experienced real frustration, as well as the, the local NGOs operating in, in these countries, because every single funding proposal they put together had to be somehow tailored towards HIV AIDS prevention um, and treatment, when actually the NGO wanted to work in environmental protection or poverty reduction, which, so they, they lost this alignment between what the needs were and what the priorities were on the ground. Um, because there was no funding available for that, for that, everything that the NGOs had to do in terms of fundraising required a lens which didn't really reflect the local demands. And um, one other sort of interesting, I, I think, aspect of of your research that seemed to have touched a nerve in the NGO community was your argument that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and feel free to restate uh, your, your argument, um, that NGOs, uh, while sort of very technically good at, at taking on specific, discrete sort of anti-poverty programs, have not had the ability to affect systemic change. Um, whereas if you want to really create like big long-term change, you need to be actively political. Yes. I, I think it touches a nerve because it, it's something that NGOs them, themselves feel strongly about. And it's something that has been a, a, a pull for NGOs due to, again, the bigger picture of the aid chain. So it's not something that, and there's not a single NGO that I have known or work with that does not want to influence systemic change and is not working very hard to do that. But um, there is definitely, as development has become more measurement-based and uh, value for money driven, there is a, again, from the donor side, a very strong pursuit of um, measurable outcomes and objectives, which pushes NGOs towards more tangible um, projects, which can be measured in terms of um, injections given or schools built or any such things. Um, and those are all very important things. But taking this more service delivery approach pulls NGOs away from the more um, slow and incremental processes of development that are more political, that require social change and political change. And, and, and it seems that one um, large development agency, that the Dutch uh, development agency, has been pretty profoundly influenced by your research, right? They, they are starting a process to shift um, some of their development priorities into those sort of more systemic um, though harder to measure uh, projects and and strategies? Yeah, it's a really important and exciting shift, actually. Um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have re reallocated all of their civil society fundings, which I think is around a, a billion euros, um, so that all of that oh. funding will be spent on um, projects that are seeking social and political change. So they're no longer just funding projects that... Um, would only produce service delivery outcomes. Everything that they fund has to fund these more political goals. And that's kind of like the vanguard, right, of, of um, sort of thinking when it comes to you know, promoting anti-poverty programs. If, if you're a, a donor country, they seem to be sort of, um, you know, the, the very progressive in, in their outlook here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as well as uh, as well as seeking this policy shift, they've also invested quite heavily in research to feed into their strategic policy to test the assumptions that they've made 
um, and based their policy on. They funded um, quite a number of research projects across across the globe to see whether um, those assumptions are true, and then so that that can be fed into the next round of policy to take it forward. So, so can I ask, you know, as an academic, like how do you measure progress towards systemic change? I mean, you said earlier it's a lot easier, you know, to measure injections given or you know polio droplets received, uh, but it is a little harder to to measure sort of elements of the kind of systemic broad societal change that ultimately leads to sort of sustainable development outcomes. Like, do you have any sense of of how you as an academic might measure? Um, those perhaps harder to quantify outcomes? Um, in some respect, it requires us to potentially revisit how we see measurement and how we view different forms of evidence. Because um, by by their nature, by essence, these, these changes aren't measurable. Um, they can be discussed and explored more qualitatively, but they're very hard to... Um, a measurement on and as soon as you try and put a measurement on that's kind of the root of the problem because it it, it removes that um that more contextual understanding and i don't know the inquit- inquit- intricate nature of the change um so it does require more qualitative in-depth kind of explorations for what that means on the ground um that's also very difficult because researching these processes is hard and if it's an evaluative process that has its own challenges and obstacles because uh people respond in different ways if it's an evaluation well, well that that might not mm, yeah, well, let me ask then so what what would you envision um is the kind of like project or ngo um strategy that would be funded by this this dutch foreign ministry endeavor could you maybe like walk me through uh, a, a perhaps like a hypothetical scenario, like using your research and, and using kind of the framework that, that you've established on um, NGOs and, and social change, what kind of, of project and what kind of shifts in resources might we expect from the, the Dutch government? Like, can you kind of make this real for a listener who might not sort of have a, a good grasp of, of some of the, of, of the NGO sector? Um. So looking at the portfolio, it, it probably looks quite different in the sense that a lot of projects focus not on these measurable outcomes, but on processes of expanding civil society space. Um, so looking at how at national and local levels, projects can start, start trying to um, expand the space in which they can negotiate with different actors. Um, I just, I, yeah, I'm trying to work, trying to remember what the projects are. Yeah. Um, well, I mean that that makes sense because there is like this trend in a lot of places where the space for civil society is is closing. But you're saying, you know, projects that you know put civil society in the room with decision makers, uh, with policymakers yeah. when they're enacting laws and, and developing policies is, is is how this this sort of change might be affected. Yeah, one of so, in many ways. Yeah. Uh, um. So, so I know uh, this kind of th- this um, endeavor um, feeds into another one of your research projects, which is mapping the NGO sector of of the UK. Can you, I guess, describe why you decided to to embark on this really ambitious research project and what the project um, is? Yeah, no, of course. Um, so I think it stems from the fact that there is definitely no shortage in general about. Um, interesting research 
on and into development NGOs. So there's been a huge literature as NGOs have become more prominent development actors. The, the literature academically on them has also increased. But there is an almost complete lack, I think I'm quite confident to say, of, of more systematic research into how development NGOs operate as sectors. So we know a lot about individual NGOs or small groups of NGOs, but we don't know anything sectorally, either in the global south where NGOs are operating lo locally, and even more so in um, domestic sectors in, in the global north. And that's quite important because it means we don't know very much about how big they are, at what scale these sectors are operating. Um, we don't know what their overall contributions to global development is. Um, and we don't know how these things are changing over time. Um, when it comes to understanding change in any given country, we also don't know how different organizations of different sizes are influenced by changes that are happening nationally or globally. Um, so these things are quite important in themselves. And I think also particularly at this time um, when we're seeing this kind of rising backlash is potentially too, too strong, but we're definitely seeing a more negative narrative emerge around um, funding international development NGOs vis-a-vis -vis reorienting that aid and um, resources internally within the UK. Um, that's around sort of 10 years of austerity measures that have seen retrenchment away from charities in the UK at the same time as overseas funding has continued to increase. But it's impossible to see really whether that narrative is also um, eroding public faith, public legitimacy and an actual public support for development NGOs. Um, and we kind of wanted to be able to measure that, to see whether this narrative reflected real changes that was happening on the ground within the UK. So, uh, myself yeah, so, so what are you my, finding? Yeah, yeah. What, 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 are, what are some of your findings? Like, how do you go about like collecting this, the, 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 the data? Um, it was ambitious. I will start with that. Uh, my, my colleague and I, Dan Brockington, who's at the University of Sheffield, set about creating a database. Um, we wanted to create a database that had as comprehensively as possible every single development NGO um, operating internationally uh, and collecting their incomes, their expenditures, and where they got their income sources for over the period 2009 to um, 2015. It was quite a rigorous process um, to create this database, I won't go into it in too much detail, but we ended up with 895 development NGOs. We had to kind of ration it by putting a minimum annual expenditure of £10,000. Um, otherwise, it would have been just too many count because there are a lot of very small NGOs that fall beneath this benchmark. Mm -hmm. um, but we went through a wide variety of processes to kind of compile this database, starting with the Charities Commission, looking at grantees of relief of the Department for International Development, going through kind of umbrella organizations and basically going through every route we could to end up with this database that we think is quite confidently reflects the NGOs, UK development NGO sector. And so, so broadly speaking, like what, what um, findings, like what, 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 what could you conclude from this research? Um, I think I'd probably categorize the findings into three. Um, there's some really interesting findings. Well, the most important, I guess, and the most interesting is, is its size and the fact that it has been relatively austerity proof. Um, hmm. So in 2015, the sector as a whole spent nearly £7 billion. Uh, 
um, which is an impressive sum. And it becomes, I think, even more powerful when you kind of compare that to the UK's official development assistance for that year. It was equivalent to just over 55% of that. Hmm. Um, so to us, that was quite a surprise. Um, when we talk about foreign aid, we tend not to include NGO expenditures and activities in that, partly because there's been no way by now to measure that. Um, so we tend to think of it as bilateral and multilateral contributions. But this would suggest that by not including um, development NGO expenditure and activities, we're really overlooking an important actor. And do most uh, of their funding come from DFID, which is the UK's uh, foreign development program? Um, no, interestingly, uh, and again, we were surprised at the strength of this finding. The public is by far the biggest supporter um, of the sector. Really? So across like those, the, those people yeah. on the streets when you see in London walking, trying to collect mm -hmm. your signatures, they, they actually make a big difference. Wow. Yeah. So, so over the five years that we were looking at, 2009 to 2015, the public contributed 40% of the entire income. Uh, that was nearly 10 billion pounds. Hmm. Um, and if you look at how the other big, the main sources of income are, the government is the second biggest contributor, but that's only 20%, well, 17%. Um, and the government, other charities and overseas governments, which are the next three biggest um, uh, donors or supporters, together they provide a 48%. So nowhere near the amount of funding that the, the British public are contributing. Mm. And that's why you concluded, you said earlier, that one of your big findings is that the NGO sector is austerity proof. It seems to be. I mean, there are, of course, important questions still there as to who the, the public is that is such a strong and growing support of the sector. Um, the evidence, if you compare the public uh, donations against real disposable incomes there they go in opposite directions um and there's also other findings around uh british donations to, to international development causes that would suggest people are, are um giving less mm -hmm. so it's a bit of a quandary i mean one of the things that we think is potentially the, the core supporters are a significant minority maybe the the wealthy who themselves are relatively austerity proof but putting their money into um good causes hmm. so, so definitely an interesting future research so you, uh, you said there, there are uh two other key sort of findings that you wanted to, that 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 um from the study could you discuss those yeah i mean the other one is um breaking down the, the sector as a whole to look at it the sort of structural mechanics of it and again i don't think we do this enough uh, everything we tend to know about NGO sectors, whether rhetorically or in academic literature, tends to be dominated by the experiences of the biggest NGOs. We don't know much about differences across and within NGOs. So we broke it down by um, size classification. And we found that income and expenditure across the sector is highly uneven. And interestingly, despite the huge increases in um, expenditure across the sector as a whole, that unevenness has been remarkably stable. So we found that um, only, I think, 77 of the largest NGOs, and that constitutes only 8% of the sector as a whole, control nearly 90% of the expenditure in 2015. Mm. So the income and expenditure is hugely dominated by this very small part of the sector. Mm. They've seen quite remarkable growth. Um, and if you track kind of where the different sources of income have gone, um, they, they're, they're sort of 
hoovering up sounds wrong, but they're they're enjoying the benefits of um, increased government funding, increased public funding hmm. across the board. They're kind of bringing it all in. Who are some of the biggest uh, UK NGOs that that fit into that category? Um, I mean, there's the ones that everyone will have heard of. So Oxfam, Save the Children. Um, I presume, oh, that's a good question now. I'd, that's okay. Oxfam and Save <laughs> yeah, the Children. All, are, are, yeah, are, all of the household names, I think, would be the ones that were on that list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, so Oxfam, so, so basically what you're saying is that these large NGOs are, um, are attracting more, most of the, the resources. And then yeah. finally, what was what was that that third finding uh, um, that's worthy to highlight? So the third finding takes us back to where we started. Really, um, we started off talking about how the bigger picture of the aid chain kind of dilutes the strength of um, of development NGOs. When you kind of look at changes over time within the sector, we see um, increasing intermediation within the NGO sector in the UK itself. So it adds complexity to the aid chain. Typically, we envision it as donor, northern NGO, local NGO, an overseas partner, and then it reaches kind of communities. And now what we're seeing is um, an additional layer of intermediation within the UK. So it comes from the donor to a big NGO to a smaller NGO, and then it starts reaching, reaching globally. I think understanding that pattern requires understanding a bit about the the changes within the um, British official development assistance um, and the kind of pressures that our Department for International Development are under to spend a growing um, aid budget with similar uh, levels of staffing. Um, and in that context, they're asked really to disperse larger sums at much faster rates and it becomes almost impossible to grant lots and lots and lots of small contracts um, mm. and instead giving much larger sums to the biggest NGOs becomes the only real feasible and attractive um, mode of operation. So finally, can I ask what makes the UK NGO sector so unique, uh, at least compared to say like the American NGO sector or the continental European NGO sector? Oops, sorry, my headphones just come out. Um, uh, that's okay. I'll, I can ask that again. Um, so, uh, finally, can I ask, what makes the UK NGO sector so unique compared at least to, say, the American NGO sector or, say, the continental European NGO sector? Um, it's an interesting question. And again, there's not necessarily rigorous research to back this up, which is one of the reasons that we um, undertook the project. But I do think that the um, development NGO sector in the UK is quite unique and has a very long and, and influential history. The only kind of statistics I found, well, the only research I found to back this up was some research in the late 90s that looked at global civil society. And that did actually evidence that um, international development NGOs had a significantly larger expenditure than any other country worldwide. Mm. Um, and particularly when you compare that to the size of the population, it, it's, quite, it's quite impressive, I guess, or, or meaningful. Um, and also, if you look globally, many of the influential worldwide names that we know about NGOs are based or have originated from there. Um, and that has that kind of rich history or whatever is embedded in um, the UK's minds that 
that mean that we're quite tied to international aid has continued to um, generate more and more and more organizations working overseas and in international development. Hmm. Um, so the sector is growing from continues to grow in both um, expenditure and the number of organizations. Our findings don't suggest that there's been any saturation or that the sector has reached a peak. We just have more and more emerging. Whether or not that's a positive thing, we don't know. Um, we can't really say anything about that from our data. But there is something inherent in, in British society that means this is a legitimate and long-supported cause. Uh, well, Nicola, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for your time. And I mean, this is, your research is so fascinating and, you know, like, like the NGO sector is such a, a big and important part of the international development puzzle. And the fact that, um, there's a sort of so little research of the kind that you do uh, on this is, it just makes, I think your, your work so valuable, at least to me and, and, and to, I think a, a lot of people who are listening to this, uh, this podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, I mean, we've really enjoyed it. It has had its um, difficulties, but we also think that its findings have been really important and hope that it inspires some new me me methodological approaches to um, NGO research. I think it's valuable. Uh, well, thank you. Thank um, you very much. It's been good talking to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Banks and to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being a content partner of Global Dispatch's podcast. If you're interested in pursuing a content partnership with the podcast, just send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Regardless, I always love hearing from you guys. See you later. Bye.